Hi, and welcome to EST. If you love the established church, this is the place to have conversations about why the established church matters, how to better serve her, and to hear stories every week about how God is using the church for His glory and our good. The show is hosted each week by Sam Rayner, the pastor of West Bradenton Baptist Church in Bradenton, Florida, Josh King, the pastor of Saxe's Church in Saxe, Texas, and me, Micah Fries, the pastor of Brainerd Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We're glad you're here. Hi, and welcome to episode 23 of the EST podcast, the podcast for the established church. This podcast is not sponsored by the Christian Standard Bible, although we're angling for it pretty hard. So if you know anybody in the Nashville area who can influence that decision, go ahead and do that. Go ahead and bug them. If you see anybody on the street, like, I don't know, Brandon, on the streets in Nashville, just yell at him how they should be sponsoring EST podcast. We are excited that you are joining us today and um, want to give a shout out to one of our listeners in Portland, Oregon, Kyle Rainey. is a pastor there in the Portland area, the Rose City, beautiful city. Love that city and uh, glad that Kyle is listening to us. Hope that you will be like him. Follow us on Twitter at EST Church. As always, I'm joined with Sam Rayner, Micah Fries, and we are going to be talking today about changing polity. So to start us off a little bit here, let's just go through and kind of give a snapshot of the polity of the churches in which we serve at. Maybe uh, let's include in that snapshot what it was like before you got there and what it is now. Micah, you want to start us off on that? Yeah, so um, we are not unusual, I would imagine, in our polity. We're, um, we're pastor-led. Um, deacon served, congregationally affirmed is the language that we would use, that we do use in our um, in our membership matters course when we when we introduce new people to membership. So by that we mean we do a quarterly uh, members meeting. You know, it used to would be called a business meeting. Um, they tend to be less highly attended, uh, which is probably not unusual. I kind of got onto the church a couple weeks ago, just gently reminding them that pastors are going to give an account to. The Lord someday for the spiritual condition of the church, and I believe that that God has given the church specific responsibilities when it comes to um, lead, you know when it comes to selection of pastors and deacons, and um, you see a few areas in which congregational government in particular is given by God to the church, and I think the, the, the congregation is going to stand before the Lord and give an account for that someday. So I I kind of nicely um, chastised our church and said, you guys need to be a part. And we have had times. We did a members meeting about six months ago when I laid out sort of vision for the future of the church. And we had, they tell me, the largest members meeting in the history of the church, probably a, which equaled about um, 30% of our weekend worship attendance. <laughs> maybe not Maybe not even that much, to be honest with you. Maybe about 25% of our weekend worship attendance. But the day-to-day leadership of our church is provided by our pastors, um, specifically what we call our pastoral leadership team, uh, which is one, two, three, four. There's five of us who are the um, senior-level pastors at our church. And so those uh, we, we meet every Tuesday morning from 9 to 11 and make most of the primary decisions of the church. And then we have a few committees, not many. We have a personnel team. They're not really – they're not committees, actually. We have a personnel team. We have a finance team. And uh, they help affirm and, and you know, vet – personnel decisions and financial decisions uh, like the budget and any significant financial decisions. But by and large, our church entrusts the vast majority of leadership to our pastors and the congregation affirms, uh, you know, those decisions. And, and the congregation can 
change those decisions. We had a budget proposal. Our budget goes from March through February. So we submitted our budget in February, uh, in January, February, we had our members meeting when we voted on the budget and, uh, members changed the budget in that meeting this year. And, uh, so we have genuine congregational polity. People can actually make things happen. Cause I know a lot of times in some churches, people are accused of pastors are accused of just, you know, the congregation just signing off on whatever they want. That's not the case. We have general congregation, genuine congregational, um, Polity. So, um, yeah, we try and maintain that balance. I mean, I want gen- genuine, actual congregational polity, while at the same time understanding that congregational polity is not the same thing as a purely democratic congregation. And so we do not have a pure democracy in our church. It's not whatever the majority wants. In fact, I taught this past Sunday that oftentimes the majority is phenomenally wrong. Uh, we talked about that in our sermon. Uh, but we do have a genuine congregational um, polity. So, and that's the way it was when uh, when you arrived, right? That's pretty much the way. Yes, it's set up. Uh, mostly we've tweaked it a little bit since I've been here. But again, I've been here nine months, so we sure. haven't made a lot of changes. And and truthfully, don't anticipate it. This the one of the reasons I came here is that they had a model that was well suited to what I believed was was an accurate representation that God gives a plurality of pastors to lead the church on a day to day basis. God calls the congregation to affirm and you know ratify certain very specific large you know decisions. And uh, and then God gives deacons in a non-authoritative position to serve the physical needs of the church, and that's how our structure works. So, without explaining it, are, do y'all have committees, or do y'all use those in any ways? We have personnel, finance team. We have, uh, and then we have teams that people do serve on. But but the vast majority of I mean, they don't. The vast majority of our decisions are not made by committees. There's very few decisions that are made by committees. And and then we actually have very few groups that are even called committees. Sure. We have teams that we put together for specific purposes for a specific time. Really, the, the major standing ones are personnel and finance Sweet. and our trustees. Sam, how's it done down in Florida? Well, we're just weird down here. I mean, <laughs> it's bizarro land, and, and I love it, so... Um, I fit I fit right into this crazy bizarre culture uh, in sure. Florida, um, but what we had before I got here was um, it was functionally a plurality, although it wasn't formally a plurality. There was the bylaws hadn't been updated in a long, long time. So one of my first projects that the church actually said you need to do this so it wasn't me leading the charge it was the church asking for my input um, one of the first things we did was actually put some formal structure to the church so where we ended up was a plurality of pastors um, deacon served congregation affirmed very similar to what what Micah has um, and within this plurality of pastors um, obviously as the lead pastor I kind of take the lead role um, but we do have some committees. So we have four standing committees. Um, we have stewardship, personnel, missions, and then nominating. Um, and the, the nominating committee just simply helps put people onto other committees, not other positions in the churches, just for the committees. And then we have ministry teams. So each uh, staff person, ministry leader, has their own team that is, as Micah said, based that they do things specifically for certain tasks in certain seasons um and then we also have a, the, the the nuance that's different than than micah's church is we have a church council that i work through so i get all of the heads of all of the committees deacon chairman moderator uh all of the key influencers of the church and the council 
there's no formal authority there. there there's no decision making power but what it is 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 a vetting process for me after I kind of run things through the staff um, or if I want to propose something that may be a little risky you know a, a initiative or something like that that's risky I'm not only going to run it through the staff I'm also going to ask the council hey what do you guys think about this because if I can get council deacons and staff on board with some sort of change initiative I'm I mean for the most part I mean it we're good so it's just a way for me to to expedite the change process in the church um it, it helps with getting buy-in I guess but we do formally do have a council that uh, that we started in order to to provide some accountability for me, but also um, just a, a vetting group outside of the staff, so that we're not our own little bubble. Hmm. Well, uh, here at Saxe's Church, we are the, the to use the little language that kind of like Micah you used there at Brainerd. We are Jesus ruled, elder led, congregationally accountable. Those are sort of the three ways that we reference it. We do have elders. Uh, we also have no committees, so we will on occasion use what we call ad hoc committees. Of course, the meaning of ad hoc just means uh, uh, gathered for a purpose or, you know, there's a purpose to there. So if we wanted to, for instance, I don't know, say like, I have no idea. If we wanted to change the name or something, we might create a committee that would look into that, examine that, or maybe if we wanted to hire somebody, we'd create a committee, but then... Once that job is done, the committee goes away. We have no standing personnel or finance committee, anything along those lines. We have um, one paid elder. That's myself. And then we have two non-paid elders. The way our bylaws read, it's, it's the majority will always be non-staff. Uh, and then all of the other positions we consider to be deacons. So your minister or deacon is the interchangeable term, elder, pastor, interchangeable terms. And so our minister is just... The way it fleshed out, there isn't any theology to this, but the way it fleshed out, ministers are paid deacons, deacons are lay deacons. And so that's um, kind of our system. When I got here, it was a sort of a deacon-led or pastor-ruled. You would kind of put them in those two, depending on the personality of the pastor and how well he got along with the deacons. The, it kind of went away, went along those lines. There were committees um, here as well. But those were often manipulated into doing whatever the deacons and the pastor wanted. So um, they were functionally non-existent. The way our polity read, we were council. Um, that's the way the kind of the polity was supposed to be. But that council did not exist for years before I got here. They never met. And even some of the positions that were required by our polity to be on the council um, didn't even exist in our church. So we couldn't have created the actual council uh, based on that polity. So I was here, I guess people often ask this. I think I was here three years when we shifted and rewrote the bylaws and became a true kind of elder-led congregation. But as Micah also pointed out, there are things, there's about 13 things listed in our bylaws that have to be done through the congregation. So membership is one of those. Removing a member after church discipline is one of those buying, selling property, the budget, all of those things that are listed um, are not done by our elders. And that's a distinction that I think a lot of people need to make. I even hear people talk about elder-led systems, and they'll dismiss them because they believe it. What they're actually talking about is what I would call an elder-ruled system, which I don't find to be biblical. I think that there is a congregational element, as was pointed out 
um, scripturally, you have a number of things that are kind of uh, taken to the congregation. For instance, Paul says to, for the church to remove the person caught in sin. That's, that's a congregational action, not one of the elders. So that's kind of the way we do it. Um, I guess the idea of this podcast in particular is talking about the shift. How do you lead towards a more healthy um, church polity? And I think that that would be the end goal, is a healthy church polity, not necessarily one that you find cool. I, th- I as an elder-led polity advocate, I, I 100% believe that this is the biblical polity. I really do believe that, even though I would probably uh, maybe disagree with my co-hosts and friends here. I think this is the uh, biblical polity. But I also find it alarming and even um, bothersome how many young pastors are going into churches and shifting to a polity that they don't understand, that the church doesn't understand, and is oftentimes hurtful to uh, the church. So I guess what are y'all's input on leading to the shift in in polity? And and what would that polity be that you would kind of shift toward? For me, uh, any move towards a plurality is a healthy move. Mm. Um, a pl- pl- I mean, you, you know, you're you're you know, you're kind of arguing for elders, sure. which has all sorts of different connotations. You kind of, uh, you, you know, you're not Presbyterian, so you don't mean it in that way. Um, right. But I get what you're saying. Um, but but I I think the one move that you probably need to move away from is that sole pastor model. Mm. Um, that's the one that I find to be the most dangerous. Yeah. And if you're if you're coming to a church, and they have that model, and and, and one be upfront, please tell the church. I mean, if you're going to go as a new pastor, you need to say, hey, this is a move that I will likely make. Um, but I would say any move towards a plurality, whatever that is, elders, you know, plurality of pastors, you know, however you do that, that's a healthy move because there's built in accountability mm-hmm. with. Uh, plurality. Uh, there's also a um, there's uh, there's also the ability to um, get more buy-in for the things that you want to do. I don't know, Michael. What what are your thoughts? Yeah, let me say. So, I, <clears throat> Josh is more is, is a little stronger on this than I would be. I, I think there's some flexibility with respect to polity, and I think partly because the Bible doesn't prescribe polity, it describes polity. And so I'm always a little cautious to be super, super, um, super, super convictional about anything that's not prescribed in Scripture, but rather is described in Scripture. And so with, with respect to description, some things that I would, I would tend to be strong on is just pastor-elder-led, congregationally governed at some level. But I'd certainly say, you know, that can be nuanced based on context and history and, and even theological inclinations. So with all of that said, I would say the very first step to getting a healthy polity is to make healthy your current polity. And, and I don't think folks structure their leadership well with respect to making their current polity healthy. Um, so you, most of us, in my experience, most of us could maintain the current polity of the church, but just help rein in and and strengthen the elements of that polity that need to be strengthened. So uh, a great example of this, I think, it might be the first church I served at. We were basically a pure democracy. Uh, we voted on every single thing. We voted on every light bulb that we purchased, mm-hmm. every month of our business meeting. 
And the business meeting, uh, the finance report was a line by line reading of the checkbook register, the church's wow. checkbook. Oh, 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 oh. Every month. Every oh, that's month. awful. That's torture. <laughs> it was rough. And, and, but here's There's the There's a level of hell where they'll do that. <laughs> Pretty confident. I didn't believe in purgatory before, but you know. Um, but then you lived it. But then I lived it. So, but here's what I would say. So, for instance, but we also had a budget that we voted on every year, and then we would still vote on every single purchase every month. So after I'd been there six months or so, one of the first things we did is we stopped voting on financial purchases. And because the finance, you know, the person who was over the financial area of the church would come up and she would read the checkbook register, and then we would vote on all the financial purchases. I just took her to the side and I said, we're going to stop that. We're not going to do that anymore. And she said, well, we've got to vote on it. I said, no, we don't. We've already voted on it. The church voted on a budget. As long as the expenditures are appropriately meeting what the budget asks for, there's no need to vote on that anymore. And it was a really simple step, and it, and it quickly reigned in this uber-democracy that was functioning in the church where we had to vote on every specific decision of the church. And, it be, and what it did is it moved functionally. It moved authority from this uber- or hyper-democracy towards pastoral leadership. Uh, because I was the one sort of setting the agenda and, and, and calling people um, to move towards this decision. So I think in most churches, uh, certainly there are some churches where the, the polity is so out of whack that you have to destroy it or you have to dismantle it. I, I agree. That does happen from time to time. I don't think that's normative. And I think in most churches there are opportunities for us to functionally work within the polity we have to make it healthier. And I think that has to generally be our first goal before we go in and dismantle polity and try and rebuild new polity. But I don't know, I could be wrong. You guys could, could disagree with me. No, and I would add, you have to teach through it. That's right. As you, you can't just expect your church to just automatically agree with you on a ma- – that's a major change. So let's that's say you need major. to make that change. That's, right. that's a major change. Um, you, you as a pastor need to teach through that, and you probably need to start with your deacons or your elders or – or, or whoever the influ- if it's a totally out of whack, just whoever the influencers are in the church, and you have to get them on board first. Right. If you're not teaching through it, I mean, you're not doing your job as a pastor because that's what you're called to do. So that's right. You you need to teach through that first before you just charge and just say we're going to change the structure of the church here. Because well, that's a good way to get fired. Just change the structure mm-hmm. of the church without you know any sort of warning or buy-in, and you know mm-hmm. people will really push back on that even if they agree with you. Yeah, you go there slowly. Go, uh, I would absolutely go there slowly, and and be upfront about it. Be, be very clear and teach through it. And when it comes to teaching, I would say go there slowly and go there redundantly. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. so yeah. we have a tendency, and I've, we've mentioned this on previous podcasts, to say, "Oh, I'm going to go out and I'm going to cast vision this Sunday, and the church is going to be on board, and we're going to move forward." <laughs> or I'm going to go out and preach a sermon on regenerate church membership this Sunday, and the church is going to buy into it, and we're going to be on board. No, they're not. They've been functioning in this context and theological culture for 40, 50, 60, 70 years. I don't care if you're Adrian Rogers or W.A. Criswell, you're not going to change their minds with a sermon unless a supernatural movement of God happens. You're going to have to, you know, the old political operative who said, you've got to say it and say it and say it and say it and say it, and about the time you're tired of saying it, they're hearing it for the first time. That's true of teaching through theological or, or, or polity changes that you're going to make in the church. This And this goes to, to pastoral tenure, and, and I'm probably not the best one to speak to pastoral tenure. Five years is my longest tenure at any church, and uh, hopefully, if God wills, he'll, he'll let me be here a lot longer than that. But this is why it's just going to take you a long time to make long-standing 
culture-shifting change in the church. You've got to earn trust, earn credibility in order to make you know substantive changes, unless, with the caveat, and this has happened to me before, the first church I pastored, we grew so much that we, the vast majority of our members had been there three years or less. Well, in that environment, yeah, you can make changes faster, and I've been able to do that. And Josh, I think you've probably got some experience with that mm-hmm. when the new member At our church right now at Brainerd, 60 to 65% of our members have been here seven years or less, even though our church will be 90 next year. Mm-hmm. Well, in a context like that, you can change often a little bit more quickly. But in most churches, that's not the case, and you're going to have to take a long time to make those changes. You're going to have to teach over and over and over again. Yeah, I would agree with um, everything that those two guys just said, so I want to make that clear. We were joking earlier about how I'm probably more on the You're a heretic, Josh. We all side. I'm very, very reformed, but as we were joking earlier, I'm reformed. I'm just not mad about it. So I'm cool with, uh, you know, people well, and, being— And Sam and, I are, Sam and I are pragmatists, and we're happy about it. Yeah, so you're... and that's fine, and that's, that's totally cool. <laughs> So the, the the things that, you know, some practical things, I would say, as as Michael pointed out there, that we I didn't necessarily I didn't do a series on elders. I didn't do anything like that. I think the difference with us was not only did we grow so quickly there at the beginning, but also the system we had just wasn't working. And so it was very obvious to everybody uh, that there needed to be change. One thing I often say is it is extremely hard to convince a church that is quote unquote successful that they're not healthy mm-hmm. because That's if right. you're you know in the metroplex here right. i've seen growing suburbs where the church is growing by i don't know 10 percent a year and they feel like we're doing something right well the city's growing by 18 percent a year you're not keeping up with the growth there and the church is deeply unhealthy so um, we had just such a bad system that we were able to just kind of stand up and say that's not working here's what we should do instead and because of some pastoral change and because of some growth, we were able to just to make that shift. A couple of pragmatic things that may help you if you whoa, want to Whoa, 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 whoa. Mark this down. Mark it Practice down. Practice coming from a Josh guy. King. Yeah. Yeah. Here's a couple of things. Um, and and this will vary depending on what you're doing. But my, my two biggest advice, and I, I think that just they're both sides of the same coin here, is – Use your new membership class as a method of change in this area. I We, for years, for those first couple of years, I told every single person who was interested in joining this church, we will go multi-elder-led. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. So if that's not something you want to do, then, you know, maybe this isn't your church. And so by the time it happened... There was a good chunk of the church that was like, yeah, we've been waiting for this for a while. This is kind of what we were into. And the people who didn't care came in necessarily. You know, I'm not saying that everybody understood exactly what that meant at the time, but that's a big helpful thing. The other thing that I would also encourage is within reason and within, um, I guess, your own personal character and integrity, do not feed the beast you want to kill. Don't feed the dragon you want to kill. So let me give you an example. Some churches are committed to death. I have no... I, committees are fine. If you use committees, they're fine. Uh, but some churches... I, I are use committees, to death. Josh. Yeah, and that's good. And that's good in your context. But some committees are... Some churches are committed to death. I've seen them... You know, there's the flower committee. There's the uh, paper goods in the kitchen committee. There's, you know, there's all of these committees. There's the clean the bathroom committee. And what happens typically in these smaller churches that are particularly in need of revitalization is 
they're trying to feed this beast of committees. And so what I've seen is pastors forcing staff, forcing their wives, forcing the other staff wives, forcing people to serve three, four, five committees. They're committed to death. And so one of the things that we did early on before we went to elder-led was there was a committee, um, I think it was the flower committee or something like that. And I said, essentially, hey, church, when it, was, when it came time to tell everybody, here's who's on the new committees. I just said, hey, church, nobody wants to serve on the flower committee. So instead, why don't we just let sister so-and-so take care of the flowers? And is everybody cool with that? And let's just do away with that committee. I didn't force anybody to be on the committee. I let people rotate off. We didn't force something that wasn't there. And what I said was, if you vote no on this, if you're saying no, we can't do away with the flower committee, by raising your hand, you're on the flower committee. So (laughs) that fixed that. And we just, and what it did was we killed off half of our committees in that moment. We also reduced the size of a lot of committees. Some of the committees went from 10 members down to three or four because that's who wanted to serve. That's who needed to serve. And it wasn't so uh, troublesome. Um, on the So I would encourage people to use their new member thing and uh, kind of don't feed the beast if you don't have to. So if you have a council and you want to go to committee, then and it's and you're allowed to within the bylaws don't make the council meet every single sunday maybe prolong that out if you're committee you want to go to council you know whatever your conviction is i'm just saying stop feeding those things and forcing them up when they should go ahead and die hey Any i want a uh, ruling i want a ruling here real quick sam by uh, asking the church, is everybody cool with this? Is that like fit within Robert's rules of order? Is, is that how that's going to function? I'm just curious. Oh, okay, I got, I got a suggestion there. Here's what we did in our bylaws when it comes to Robert's rules of order. Yeah, we did the same thing, I think. Okay, so we put uh, – now, I don't know if you did or not. Um, we put – I put a line in there. So the church actually let me help – I wrote a lot of the bylaws. The council helped me. But when it comes to Robert's rules of order – what the language that we put in there is the moderator has the discretion to use Robert's rules of order if necessary in a meeting. So what it did was we don't we don't use Robert's rules of order. I mean, I mean, we kind of use some of the like, do we have a motion? Do we have a second? But we don't really use it in the way that it's meant to be used in the whole formal sense. We just say, hey, if, if the meeting gets sideways on us, we can fall back on Robert. That's the that's the rules of order is Robert's rules of order. But many of our meetings, we don't we don't use Robert's rules of order at all. E- even some business meetings. Um, so we just have we have it. I'm sad in this moment because I love Robert's rules of order. That's how much of a dork I am. In our new Bible, like we did away with it. We have a one page rules of order. The way that we handle meetings, we that is, it's one page. It's super easy. And yeah, the uh, way we make motions and second them is is everybody cool with this? Because that's what we're gonna do. So, yeah, and you know. but a lot of our listeners may not be able to do that, Josh. Um, they may not. So, they may not. So and I, the language we added it was it's yeah. it's our fallback. You know, we're not going to use it in most of our meetings, but if we need something, if something gets out of order, that's what we use. Yeah, I think. And Micah, our, yeah, you're a geek. I, I, I you probably have. Micah probably has the extended version of Robert's Rules of Order on his <laughs> shelf right now. He's got I a actually, pocket no, edition. I, he pulls. Out I did. I did grow up a Southern Baptist going to business meetings and Southern Baptist conventions. And so I've got this uber odd fascination with Robert's rules of order. Hey, at the convention, it's a lot of fun. Um, oh, the church in, in business meetings, not so much fun. So I want one of those parliamentarians to stand next to our moderator and help him moderate our meetings at our church. Yeah. Well, here's the deal. If, I think if we could just kind of sum this up in this way, if, if you're listening, you know, 
I, I really want you to hear you kind of my heart on this. Don't do something just to be cool or don't do something just to, and I'm talking as the elder led guy. I think a lot of churches get hurt when they force a polity on the church that the church is not ready for. And it's just something so you can say, Hey, we're elder now, or we're council now, or we're pastoral staff now or something like that. Don't do that. If the church is not ready for it, there's a number of strategies to kind of lead them through and then um, also just don't villainize your church or act like they're evil because of the system that they're in. Lead them through that system, out of that system if necessary, if it's your conviction. If not, just love people and, and lead them in that kind of system there. So there's a number of other ways that you can shift, and we could talk about that offline. But I think that this is a kind of good discussion. Any final thoughts on this, Mike or Sam? Yeah, I would, I would add um – most church governments are not so bad that they need to be changed immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, there are cases where that needs to happen. But for most of our listeners, you probably have time. So take the time to get the buy-in. Take the time to do it well. Take the time to learn the culture of the church. You know, This is often the first thing that new pastors go to is, or young pastors go to is, oh, I need to change the polity. Um, you might. A lot of churches do need to change their polity, but I think for most of our listeners, you probably have time to do this. Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't rush through it. Micah? Micah? Yeah, no, I, w- I would agree. And I, I mean, I just, again, I think pastoring the established church effectively, unless in seriously sick situation, is almost always a story of managing people in relationships well and working within existing context to bring them toward health before you do any sort of wrecking ball activity. Mm-hmm. And so there are times when the wrecking ball activity needs to happen, but I think this goes back to our last podcast about hiring and firing. Before you get to the point where the wrecking ball needs to come in, you need to make sure that you've done everything in your power to bring health to that which is there before you take that next step. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you take the wrecking, if you take the wrecking ball to everything... Yeah. You don't have a church anymore. That's exactly right. So be, be very careful when you use And I know people who have done that, and they love to say proudly, we stood for, you know, whatever we stood with integrity or stood for the gospel. No, I mean, you just were really a jerk and a poor yeah. leader. And, yeah. you know, and the anyway, bottom line is every church is congregational. I don't care if you're Presbyterian exactly. or what. Every church is congregational. They don't like it. They're going to leave, and that's their vote. So you're going to have to work with people. Thanks again for listening to this episode of EST. Follow us, rate us, review us on iTunes, and we'll see you next week.